Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. As always, it's great to be with you, Rich, and we're excited today to once again be joined by Evan Medeiros, one of America's leading experts on Asia, having served as President Obama's chief Asia advisor at the National Security Council. As a reminder, this is part two of our discussion with Evan as we commemorate the 40th anniversary of the relationship between the United States and the People's Republic of China. If you have yet to listen to part one, we would encourage you to check that episode out from earlier this month. Yeah, and Kurt, uh, you and I have both had the pleasure of working with Evan, both in and outside of of government. And I really speak for both of us that there are very few people in the United States with a more nuanced and sophisticated understanding of China than Evan. So Evan, thank you for joining us again. It's great thank to you, continue Rich. Thanks, this Kurt. conversation. It's great, great to be back in the studio again and so quickly after the last podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, where we we left off kind of talking about the current administration's approach uh, to China and it, how it has been a bit of a departure. I want to um, go back to a speech that the vice president gave uh, not too long ago. But the, the takeaway was basically that we are now entering a new uh, Cold War, uh, and it's the U.S. Uh, versus China. And I think that was a bit jarring uh, for folks. Very jarring, Rich. Uh, but tell us what you thought of the speech. Is that where we are, and is, is that where, where we're headed? Well, they're, they're, uh, the speech was interesting in multiple ways. Uh, number one, the fact that he framed, the vice president framed the China challenge in principally ideological terms. And I think that's a that's very much an open question, because uh, she's Xi Jinping's promotion of the China choice, uh, China's involvement in the politics of other countries, sometimes sort of brazen interference, like in uh, New Zealand and Australia, is a deeply, deeply worrying trend. But that's very different than the kind of ideological divide between the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. I mean, during the Cold War. The U.S. and Soviet Union had alternate views of global order and were actively promoting them with uh, you know, proxy states, etc. And that is not where the U.S.-China relationship is today. Now, I, I share concerns about China's promotion of the China choice, their interference and involvement in politics. I was part of the recent... Um, Hoover Institute report that looked at this question of political uh, influence, Chinese political influence in the United States. I sh share the concerns and the conclusions of that particular report. But I think it's important to draw a distinction between, you know, China promoting the China choice, the China alternative on the one hand as a way to justify and legitimize China's choices, this mix of state-directed development and authoritarian political system, sort of making the world safe for that particular um, uh, model versus actively promoting uh, that model and undermining democracies. And I think there's a distinction there. And what I worry is that in China's effort to promote the former, it's actually going to accomplish the latter. But that's very far from the kind of deep ideological divide between uh, the U.S. and the Soviet Union. 
And so framing the China challenge in ideological terms, I think, is uh, raises a series of questions about whether or not that's accurate. But it also diminishes the degree to which the security challenges, the economic challenges um, are undermining U.S. interests. And the other thing about the speech is it didn't provide any policy solutions. It was long on challenges, long on problems. Um, you know, and lesson number one you learn in government is don't come to your boss with a problem that doesn't have a solution. Right. But the narrative, the Pence-Trump narrative, uh, is not only about the security challenges that China presents, but also that economically we have been taken for a ride. And you described in our first episode how in 1979, China was a very, as you described it, a different planet, very poor. Uh, and I, th I think about the two-way trade number between the U.S. and China in 1985 was about $7 billion. Today, it's over $700 billion. Um, but the, again, the current narrative is that China extracted all the benefit from us. Our jobs went there. Our factories went there. There's a big trade deficit. And they are now correcting the errors of previous presidents and previous administrations. Well, there's no question that China has engaged in a variety of unfair trade and investment practices that have disadvantaged the United States. The, but American companies, American consumers, American workers have also benefited enormously from China's rise. Um, and uh, it's one of these classic situations where the pain is focused, the benefits are diffuse. And so it's often difficult to sort of, you know, um, you don't hear a lot of politicians going around talking about the, the benefits to American workers from China's rise. Or, or the benefits to American consumers. But, you know, mm. none of that, talking about the benefits of China's rise, the benefits of the U.S.-China economic relationship is not, is not a way to minimize uh, the challenges that the U.S. faces from China. I mean, one of the biggest problems was... Uh, after China entered into WTO, beginning in the mid-2000s, um, the rise of state-owned enterprises, the privileging of state-directed development, it created a variety of non-tariff barriers um, that uh, began restricting uh, market access for American companies. So as a result, they couldn't compete on a level playing field, combined with policies of forced technology transfer, cyber-enabled economic espionage, blatant violation of, you know, of IPR. So, you know, all of that, um, all of that really accelerated beginning in the mid-2000s. So for sure, there are, there are huge economic challenges in the U.S.-China economic relationship. On the security side, a uh, good friend of all of ours, uh, Professor Graham Allison at Harvard has written about the historical patterns of a rising power uh, challenging the established power, in this case, uh, China, uh, taking on the United States for primacy in the global system, and leaves out this really kind of scary possibility that no matter what we do, we are destined for conflict. And there's a, it goes through a number of historical examples to show how that's 
the case. He doesn't say it's inevitable and we have to work to avoid it. But what's your take on that? Are we, from a security perspective, are we, is this on a collision course that we can't get off even if we wanted to? I mean, I'm deeply concerned about the the divergence in U.S. and Chinese security interests. It's this nasty combination of diverging interests and a security dilemma that's moving from low intensity to high intensity. So uh, I think we need to take very, very serious uh, the security competition and the fact that security competition and economic competition are now becoming blended in a way. Um, I mean, I call it the securitization of the economic relationship. In other words, some of the economic challenges we face have a national security dimension to them, you know, exposure to supply chains, et cetera. But on Graham's, you know, Thucydides trap argument, I'm, um, I'm not a big proponent of it simply because I think it doesn't control for big variables like the presence of nuclear weapons, the profound and unique economic interdependence, the fact that there's a lot of debate about whether or not um, he accurately characterized some of the historic examples. Joe Nye wrote a very interesting book review along those lines. And then just the whole issue of personal agency. I, I don't believe that there are law of physics type principles that guide international relations, right? There's really nothing that's inevitable between the two. But again, that's not meant to minimize the security competition. The question is, what is the right way to think about U.S.-China security issues? And I don't think the Thucydides trap is one of them. One final point on that is, if you believe in the Thucydides trap, it inevitably leads you to the conclusion, well, if conflict is potentially inevitable, we need to begin taking steps to avoid it. And that includes a whole variety of sort of accommodation and reassurance measures. And, and Grim Allison talks about some of those in his book. And my concern is that too often the focus on reassurance and accommodation um, is discussed at the expense of the opposite end of the uh, the spectrum, which is you could start pulling punches and doing things that actually reinforce a rising power's expectations that they can get more by being coercive militarily or uh, engaging in predatory economic practices. So I often wish that the Thucydides trap was juxtaposed with the other problem on the other side of the spectrum, which is too much reassurance and too much accommodation can reinforce a rising power's um, coercive instincts. Yeah, coercive instincts. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, Evan. So I, I'd be curious. So we've talked a little bit about how um, strategists, politicians, others are viewing China in the United States. What does the other side of the mirror look like? How would you describe debates currently in China about how they see the United States? That's where I think some of our debate falls down. I, I'm not sure we have a full and nuanced view in the way that you do, Evan, of how China um, uh, calculates the current set of circumstances. That's a great question, Kurt. And it's something that I'm constantly assessing and reassessing because these days being a China watcher is pretty difficult business because on the one hand, um, under Xi Jinping, more and more decisions are being made at the very top. So as fun and interesting as it is to go to Beijing, participate in conferences, debate and discuss with Chinese friends, talk to 
colleagues in the government, whether or not that actually their discussion and debate actually motivates policy is a very, very different question because the way in which Xi Jinping has centralized decision-making in the party apparatus, the way he has consolidated power at the top, it feels like there's a very, very small group of people that makes the most consequential decisions about the U.S.-China relationship. That said, the big debates are, you know, is America in uh, short-term decline, in permanent decline? How rapid a decline is it? Uh, Debates about um, whether or not the U.S. actually sees China as an implacable foe. Are we preparing for a new ideologically motivated Cold War? I think there's a lot of debate and discussion uh, around the Pence speech and whether or not the Pence speech represents this new phase in U.S. policy and whether or not China really should try and work with the United States at all, or should they just give up and accept the reality that confrontation uh, is coming? So it's those those kinds of, of classic questions. I mean, for example, my understanding is there's, among scholars, they're debating whether or not to characterize the current situation as one of a strategic opportunity, a term that Chiang Zemin used in the early 2000s, or whether or not to use what they believe is a more modest term as a historic opportunity. But the Chinese are having a difficult time digesting and understanding the Trump approach, because what they want to know is the Trump approach is so different from the past 40 years. Does it is it a sort of cyclical aberration that reflects the idiosyncrasies of the Trump team? Or is this where the U.S.-China relationship is going over the long term? Really interesting. I wonder if I could shift your attention uh, back to the region uh, away from the U.S.-China uh, relationship and give us your sense on what's happening with a few key countries in the region. For example, uh, China and India, China and Russia, China and Pakistan. Some of our listeners were just waiting patiently, hoping <laughs> and praying that Rich would raise all, India. All of our listeners in India are yeah, we're waiting. So it's been raised. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Great. So uh, I think one of the most interesting. Um, dimensions of Chinese foreign policy under Xi, but specifically since the Trump administration, is the very systematic effort that the Chinese have taken to really sort of consolidate their northern, eastern, uh, southern, and western flanks. In other words, improve relations as ties with the U.S. get a lot more complicated. So I think to China's north, the relationship with Russia as it not is at an all-time high. We're in one of these unique historic periods where now China's relationship with Russia and Russia's relationship with China is more important to both Xi and Putin than their independent relationships with the United States. How much of that is just driven by uh, interest in balancing the kind of Western order and specifically the United States? I think that has a lot to do with it. But also there's there are economic reasons, there are military security reasons. The Chinese are getting access to a lot of military technology that right. facilitate modernization. I think part of it is a reaction to the isolation Russia has experienced uh, since its you know, invasion of Ukraine, its seizing of Crimea. That created a huge opportunity for Putin to hug China tighter and for China to gain enormous gains from doing that. The other thing to keep in mind is that everybody always talks about the big break on the China-Russia relationship being the sort of insecurity and the history of duplicity. I actually think it's a strength in that relationship because both sides come into it with eyes wide open. They know the history very, very well 
but I think they also want to see their interests converging. And you can't um, undercount the the role of personalities. And I think she. Xi Jinping and Putin and their families are very, very close. And I think that lubricates a lot of cooperation between the two. And I would encourage your listeners to look at the military dimension of that relationship, which I think had largely been symbolic for many years. And now it's moving to something that may be more operational. And I see that as a leading indicator of where this relationship could be going. Oh, it's, I think it's really serious, and I think it's it's raised a lot of uh, concerns in uh, New Delhi. And frankly, it's given us uh, an opportunity to work uh, closer with a number of our partners in, in Asia. Mm-hmm. I agree. Hey, Evan, let me ask you one uh, straightforward, simple question about one belt, one road. <laughs> what should we do about it? Yeah. Yeah. And, so what, I, and what is it? Is it a infrastructure project, or is it something much more uh, dramatic? I mean, like most things in China, uh, it has multiple motivations and multiple purposes. Um, so you can't put one bumper sticker on one belt and road. There's a political security dimension to it. There's an economic dimension to it. There's sort of a a global agenda dimension to it. So so it's all there. But what should the United States do? My view is trying to counter the belt and road is completely futile mm. because there is an infrastructure deficit globally. Um, and uh, countries want resources to fill it. And uh, improving infrastructure, assuming it's done well and in ways that uh, don't undermine others' economic interests, uh, is in the, the interests of countries all over the world. It's, it's a public good. So what I'd like to see the United States do is go bigger than the Belt and Road. In other words, you know, hug it tight to ensure that the Belt and Road uh, operates by you know global standards and is not a tool of Chinese foreign policy. So what I'd like to see is, is the next president host a global infrastructure summit, like President Obama did with nuclear security and global health. Build a broader narrative, and at that summit, talk about American investment in infrastructure at home, but also talk about building infrastructure abroad, partner with other global initiatives like the Belt and Road, like what the Japanese are doing. Uh, The U.S., I think, needs to explore the possibility of developing an infrastructure bank at home that has a combination of public and private financing. Um, Look into the possibility of taking, you know, foreign investment for that infrastructure bank. So simply go bigger and better because building infrastructure is a global public good. America is great at building global public goods. But to do that requires resources, it requires vision, and it requires a political consensus. I want to ask you another question, a hard one, if I could, Evan. So, Kurt, um, I only like easy questions. Okay. Well, you're going to have to handle this one. So we were at a dinner not long ago in which a group of very prominent, you know, senators, congressmen, other foreign policy folks were, were grappling with these very questions. And I think there was one group that argued that, look, we're at a turning point. We're, we're coming to the end of one period. Um, that's been marked uh, by a series of policies that that essentially extended back over the last 40 years or so. And we're now beginning to define the characteristics of a new period that might be more competitive, that um, would probably carry greater risks. First of all, I want to ask you, do you think that's accurate? 
But then I think there is perhaps an unspoken concern that maybe the United States is not up for this. Like this, this would take us into a new sustained period of competition. We've had basically 50 years, almost 50 years of Cold War with the former Soviet Union, followed by, you know, a brief interregnum with the end of the Cold War, and then 20 years of conflict, unrewarding conflict, largely in the Middle East and South Asia, and that the American people, the American public, may not be prepared for this kind of systemic, all-out, you know, competition with China. Where are you on these larger questions? I mean, I do believe that the U.S.-China relationship is entering into a new era, and it's a new era defined by China's capabilities. In other words, it's a new era in which you have a, a China that is confident, it's ambitious, it's, it wants to pursue its interests, uh, including those interests that don't align with the United States. Um, it's willing to tolerate risk and friction in the U.S.-China relationship, and uh, it wants to position itself as a global leader. Xi Jinping revealed that to the world in the fall of 2017 in his uh, speech at the 19th Party Congress. So there's no question we're in a new world. I think the bigger question is how the United States responds, and that response has always been a combination of policy toward China, policy toward the region, and policy at home. And I think where policymakers that we've been talking to, like that dinner, Kurt, are struggling is how does America mobilize the political and economic resources at home to ensure that America can compete in that kind of world? And it's not just about um, sort of competing with China head on. It's about making sure that America invests itself in R&D, rebuilds its infrastructure, um, pays attention to its deficits in, you know, education, its fiscal challenges, etc. And I think that's where policymakers are struggling because um, where are we going to get the resources and the political will to make those fundamental changes that are needed for more comprehensive competitiveness on the part of the U.S.? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, someone that you worked for was just here on the podcast. Tom Donilon was here a few weeks ago and and said a similar thing, which is we're spending a lot of time focused on trying to stop China from doing certain things as opposed to talking about what we can do here in the United States to really compete. Uh, I mean, that's the key, because when you look at competing with China, uh, of course, what we do bilaterally will matter. But I think one of the real policy innovations that Kurt and I tried to pursue, and I think effectively pursued it in the Obama administration, was redefining China's strategy as not just what you do with China, but how you how you approach China within the region, create an environment in Asia that shapes China's choices, but in a non-confrontational way. We talked about being smart in challenging China, but not confronting China. And I often worry that the Trump administration, to get back to Vice President Pence's speech, it's a lot about confronting China, you know, satisfying ourselves psychologically that we're being tough without actually having a policy that that challenges some of the uh, policies that China's um, putting forward. I've got to ask you how you even got started down this mm. path in your career, and you've been at this a long time. Uh, you've studied China extensively in, in college and graduate school. How did, how did you even get interested in, in this subject? Have you always been interested in, in Asia and in China specifically? So my interest in China and Asia really came about 
uh, as a function of my interest in, in the Cold War and arms control. As a teenager in the mid-1980s, uh, I was a very active policy debater in high school. Mm. And policy debate is sort of this all-encompassing um, exercise. You've had, you, you've had others on your podcast, like Ambassador Mike McFall, a good friend of mine from the NSC, who had a similar professional experience. And through my time in policy debate in high school, I sort of got exposed to China. But China at that time in the late 80s was this sort of very boutique, obscure type of thing. My interest sort of evolved from arms control to nonproliferation types of issues. Um, but nonproliferation was a very, very sort of marginal issue on international security affairs, unlike now. And so I got this job after college being a research assistant at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. The guy I worked for was very interested in China and North Korea. He was a nonproliferation specialist, uh, Leonard Sandy Spector. And what I found was that there were just so few people that understood what was going on with China on foreign policy and intellectual security affairs. So for me, I was drawn to the intellectual challenge of China. And then one summer, I went to China with my dad, who had a business trip there, and just found it fascinating. So for me, it was sort of- When was that, Evan? That would have been summer of 95, summer of 94, 95. That that was your first visit? Correct. So- Take us, you, you began one of our podcasts talking about what China was like in 1979. How much had it changed by 1995? Uh, well, I don't have, a, I can't compare from 79 to 95, but I remember visiting Shanghai in 95 with my dad, and it was just a massive construction site. It was unbelievable. I mean, and it, it was buildings going up all over the place. It was an impossible city to navigate. The sort of the the um, ambition and the industriousness of the Chinese people was apparent. They were incredibly friendly, wanted to learn a lot. Uh, my dad was a doctor, or he is a doctor who is an infectious disease specialist, and his colleagues were just trying to absorb as much as possible about infection control in hospitals. I remember walking along the Bund. They pointed to this huge field across from the Bund, and they said, that's called Pudong, and we're going to build a whole nother city there. And I said, really, by when? You know, 2020? And they said, no, in the next two to three years, right? And then, of course, I visited a few years later and couldn't believe that they had actually done it. Are you optimistic, pessimistic, uh, not sure about where we're headed in our relationship with, with China? Uh, give us Just give us a, a teaser so when you come back for a future episode, we right. can... For a third measure, podcast. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. In, in 2020. <laughs> um, I'm deeply concerned. I, mm. I see a whole variety of trends, both on the American side and the Chinese side, mm. that are driving the relationship toward um, uncontrolled competition. And, you know, I have a variety of concerns about whether or not the Trump administration really has the tools in place and the discipline to manage the competition in the relationship. And here's the rub. All it's going to take is one accident or miscalculation that could spiral out of control, uh, that could really take all of the anxiety and the concerns in both Washington and Beijing and put the relationship in a very different place. I mean, look look at um, the conversations in Washington and Beijing as a result of, of the arrest of this 
Huawei executive in right. Canada right. and sort of the conversation that that spun off. Imagine the loss of life of American and or Chinese military officers in the South China Sea. Mm. Yeah. Evan, very provocative. You've given us a lot to think about, and we really appreciate you joining us for the last two episodes and for this look back of the last four years of, of U.S.-China relations as, and as we consider these big kind of weighty issues as, as we go forward. So really appreciate all your terrific insights. Yeah, really terrific, Evan. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on Dealers 